0: Uh, Sean, welcome to Rare Bird Radio in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm Adam Novak, author of Freaks of the Industry, a novel of Los Angeles, which comes out this July, and I'm thrilled to start a conversation fire with Sean McDaniel, who has written Criminal Zoo, a riveting debut novel about a murderer in a zoo that's so disturbing it makes Death Row look like Disneyland. What's up, Sean?
1: Death row like Disneyland. I like that. Hey, Adam, Sean McDaniel up here in Billings, Montana. Just another day in paradise. All we're missing are the palm trees. You got all those. How are you doing today?
0: I'm excellent, and I'm thrilled to be talking to the god of Criminal Zoo. Um, We're talking because I I bought Criminal Zoo on a Friday night And I finished reading it in one sitting on Saturday. So I'm thrilled to be talking to you. Uh, It's so well done, Sean. Uh, Criminal Zoo is so confidently written, and everything about this novel uh, just grabbed me. So I want to congratulate you on this novel. And the thing that sort of stood out for me was it's written in the first person. And so to have this murderer lead me by the throat and tell me I am an exhibit in the criminal zoo, uh, it's just a ride.
1: Well, thank you, Adam. I appreciate
0: that. Well, Samuel Bradbury is your terrifying narrator. Uh, Tell us, how did you come up with his moniker, his AKA? And what's the twisted logic that lands him in the criminal zoo?
1: Uh, Well, my narrator, he is the protagonist, criminal protagonist. He is Samuel Bradbury. Now, Samuel is a tribute to one Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain. I'm a big fan of Mark Twain, Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry fan, Letters from the Earth. So Samuel gets that from uh, Samuel Clemens. Bradbury, we're going to go with Ray Bradbury, also a fan. As a young man, as a kid, I read Something Wicked This Way Comes. You know, Mr. Dark, our our anti-hero in uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes? My boy, my guy had to be Samuel Bradbury. Now, as far as the the twisted logic, go ahead.
0: No, I want to hear the twisted logic from you.
1: Okay, so the twisted logic, Samuel Bradbury thinks he's doing good things. Samuel Bradbury thinks that he's cleansing you. In his mutilations, he's cutting your ears off because of the sin you've heard. He's cutting out your eyes because of the sin you've seen. He's cutting out your tongue because of the sin you've spoken. What he's doing is he's purifying you and he's sending your soul to heaven. So you're sitting next to God, purified. So in Samuel's mind and in Criminal Zoo, you are in the mind of a madman. You're in the mind of a serial killer. But, you know, he doesn't think he's a serial killer. He thinks he's a good guy. So now I have a question for you. I'm going to turn, I'm going to flip this over onto you. I just had, I had the privilege of reading on PDF file, Freaks of the Industry. Now, it is said to write what you know. Adam, how much truth is in Freaks of the Industry? Now, is this a glimpse of Hollywood with its pants around its ankles? Your brilliantly colorful characters, Rodney, Scott, Legion, I love Legion, Larry, Mursault, Maeve, Violet, and the rest of the crew. Were they inspired by actual people, Adam? All the
0: people you mentioned were inspired by me. All these people in the book. And I'll tell you about them because it's several stories in one. You know, it's about a sex addict on a collision course with his daughter, who's a prostitute, it's about a movie star who may or may not be the Antichrist. And it's about a studio executive, a twin, who learns he was a triplet. Not still born, but still alive. And she wants revenge. It's sort of like Nashville, with a tan, I'm, And the funny thing is, is that I think all my novels have been autobiographical. So, If anything, uh, they are populating my head. And I'll tell you the story. One time I have a twin brother, Jonathan, and when he read my first novel, The Non-Pro, he finished it and called me up and he said, Bro, I had no idea you got so much action in L.A. And I said, Bro, it's a novel. And he said, Bullshit everything you write is about you. So, there's a lot that's made up, but there's a lot that has happened to people I know, and uh, uh, I don't write about anything other than uh, this city, so you won't find me writing about Montana or Colorado. I think I found my city that I want to write about. Now, what's great about your novel is that it, it reminded me of the same violent universe as the Purge movies. You know? This, this premise is so possible and scary that uh, I felt like I was right there in a cell with Samuel and uh, i didn't want to leave. So that's saying something. Uh, how long did it take you to write this novel? Do you remember what your word count was when you finished? And what was the editing process like?
1: What's interesting, you bring up The Purge, because when The Purge, the original movie, the first one came out, I was in the process of trying to get Criminal Zoo published. The Purge came out, and it it was uncomfortable for me because I thought, oh, no, that is too close. That's scary close. The dystopian near future. Mm -hmm. You know, a solution that becomes far more heinous than the original problem in The Purge. You know, it's a parallel plot almost where the solution that they're going for in The Purge, you know, 12 hours. One day per year, almost like Bacchanal, where anything goes, and you can take care of anybody you want, you have any, you want to take someone out, you wait till the purge, you know, so crime goes down, and for 364 days a year, the world is a great place, but that 12 hours, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. on the purge, it's terrifying that solution becomes far more terrifying than the original problem in criminal zoo. The original problem, what do we do with animals disguised as humans, Adam? I describe them as that they're exhibits. Like you said in your opening, they are exhibits. They, they are treated as animals. They are in enclosures. So it does parallel the purge. It is again, it's a dystopian near future where we have a solution that becomes far more atrocious, far more heinous than the original problem. What do we do with those who prey upon us? In Criminal Zoo, it is true justice. It is an eye for an eye justice. It finally gives the bad guys something to really think about. As far as first draft, my first draft, words were probably, I'm going to say about 88,000. And multiple, multiple rewrites later, I think the submitted to the publisher was probably about 84,000. But at 88,000, we went up, and then we went down, and we went back again. So we did play with the words. Now, as far as the editing, I did a lot of editing myself. I have a very good friend who's a librarian. I call her my brutally honest yet brutal editor. She will slash my work. I tell her. Mark it in red. I won't be I won't be damaged by seeing that red ink. Mm-hmm. So when she gets my manuscripts back, they come back more red than black. So I get a lot of notes from her, a lot of input from her, and then once I turn it in to the editors at Defenestration Press, and I would love to give a shout-out right now to Pat Walsh at Defenestration Press and Tyson Cornell at Rare Bird Books and the incredible staff that those two... Uh, publishing houses have I want to thank them for what they're doing but yeah once I gave it to the editors they really helped me out quite a bit now again I must flip it back on you Adam you give me the floor I'm gonna ask you a question your book freaks of the industry in it you utilize press releases synopsis narrative text exposition and even a deposition to reveal the story, to move it forward, and you do it so very well. Was it difficult to organize and piece together these mediums into a book that flows so deliciously well?
0: Sean, it was impossible. I had so many storylines at one point, so many newspaper articles that, You know, there's an expression in the movie business, when there's a problem, they say, we'll fix it in post, meaning we'll find the solution later when we're editing it. And were it not for the editors at Rare Bird Books, I give them a shout-out for this book because it really uh, helped me see the forest from the trees and find the stories that were left to be told, so it took me a long time to find this novel in the editing room, and uh, I don't think it could have been told any other way, so uh, we're really blessed to have been discovered by Rare Bird Books, and I want to give a shout-out to Sue Tyson, Cornell, and Julia, and Alice, and Haley, and Andrew, who make us look so good. Sean, where do you write? Do you have like a cave? Where do your creative epiphanies strike? In the shower? In traffic? How do these ideas come to you?
1: All right, now, you ask if I write in a cave. Man, I'm not a terrorist. I once said on Saturday Night Live... If your address reads a cave, you might be a terrorist. No, I don't write in a cave, but that's pretty funny. I write in a spare bedroom. It was once my my son's, but he's now off to college. So I've moved into his bedroom, and uh, you know when I write, I have I got no one can be in the house. I put my new age music in. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is gone. I write by myself. And as far as like the creative epiphanies, you know, Adam, I I don't think much about my writing until I'm writing. When I write, it's almost like I go to sleep, like I, I go into a dream world. And I watch these stories play out and then I record them. I come back. I bring the story back. I don't know what I'm writing until I write it. So I guess the short answer to that is, when do I have my creative epiphanies only when I write? That's when it's like I'm watching. I'm watching this story play out, and that leads me to a question for you, you know, the great debate in the writing world. Do you, personally, you outline in advance Or do you channel, because that's what I've been told, that what I'm doing is kind of channeling my characters, watching them, bringing them back from whatever netherworld they exist in. Adam, do you outline or do you channel your characters from their other world into our known world? How do you do it?
0: Well, I don't outline, but what you said about it's like watching a movie with your eyes closed, but your eyes are open and I see and hear a movie when I'm thinking about the book. I could be writing, I could be driving, I could be in the shower. But what I like to do, Sean, is I make a scene. I put a screenwriter and a reader in a community college classroom and I decide two men enter, one man leaves. And then I write that. Or I take the janitor's in Los Angeles and I send them to Beverly Hills to assassinate agents and managers in a assassination game that turns into an all out war. And then I see what happens and I blink, I wake up. It's in the afternoon and I look out the window and I'm done for the day. How lucky are we? How lucky are we if we get to live in our heads?
1: Well, you know what? It's an amazing experience. To me, it's as close to magic as anything I'll ever know. Sometimes I get a little worried about living in my own head. But I guess, you know what? I might as well live there. There's room for me. I've I got to be careful that I don't stand there too long. The uh, Johnny Depp film, Secret Window, I want to be careful that mm-hmm. uh, I don't drift too far. So now I got a question for you Adam. Part okay. of your novel, part of your novel takes place in Washington D.C. Now you write about Washington like you've been there, like you've spent time there. I'm going to assume how you've been there. How much time did you spend there as a kid, as an adult?
0: Well, you should you're right. I mean, I was born, bred and buttered in D.C. until I left for film school. But you know, Washington D.C. isn't the only autobiographical aspect of freaks of the industry. See, I was a twin who found out much later that we were triplets. We were actually triplets, and it turns out that me and my brother Jonathan had a womb mate. And she was just a mass of cells, apparently, when we were born. But I always wanted to write about what happened to her. And she was talked about as a sister. And I wondered what if doctors had thrown her away and what if she had lived. And the other fact that's always stayed with me is that when we were born my brother weighed five pounds, and I weighed two. So when I was writing this, this became my Stephen King novel, Inside Freaks of the Industry. And it's one of my favorite stories.
1: Adam, hey, Adam, can I interrupt you for a second? Of course. Adam, I got to tell you right now, I loved your novel, but now knowing that you literally bought, brought you brought your triplet to life, knowing that this is a true aspect of you being a twin and there being a triplet, knowing that you brought your triplet to life in your novel, bravo. I'm telling you, that is absolutely amazing. You gave life to this triplet, eternal life, because now this booklet is in a novel that will be read for the ages to come. So I commend you. I loved it before, but now I love it even more. Adam, well done. Excellent work.
0: Thank you. I, I wanted I wanted to share that with you because I, you know, you 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 raise a, a important question, and I, I I wanted you to know the backstory where this came from. It really wasn't something I just made up, you know, and speaking of Stephen King, um, you know, he called the movie, the evil dead, grueling horror, grueling horror. And, you know, if Stephen King, uh, was going to write a movie, uh, and there would be a novel Stephen King would write. I felt like this movie would be a cross between, you know, American Psycho and if Stephen King had written it because you 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 really I think captured the horror of the zoo in a way that only, you know, my hero Stephen King would have written and the the thing that I wanted to ask you cuz it's it's so unique to your novel is that there is a structure in this novel that parallels Samuel's life outside the zoo before he's caught and inside when he becomes an exhibit. There's this perfect feng shui to the novel. It just flows. And how you go from the past to the present and tell us a portrait of Samuel Bradbury. This is a Portrait of a Life. Was the structure designed from the get-go, or did it come to you in the editing? It's, I, had to, I have to ask.
1: Well, I appreciate the question. Excellent question. Now, you talk about Stephen King being your hero. My friend, we share the same hero. Born and raised on that guy. My favorite novel of all time in the universe is It, which I'm pretty uh-huh. excited to. It is coming out in full-length feature film this September, and I'm just pretty damn excited to go see It. Favorite novel all time ever, Stephen King. Now, as you talk about the feng shui of criminal, well, first of all, to be compared to Brett Easton Ellis, of American Psycho, and even mentioned in the same sentence as Stephen King. I am honored, Adam, thank you for that. Now, in Stephen King's It, we follow this band of kids, these kids that battle It, Pennywise. Pennywise the Dancing Clown, you know, they do battle with Pennywise as kids, and then they come back to Derry, Maine. I love Derry, Maine. They come back as adults and they battle Pennywise all over again. In it, my favorite book ever, and I happen to mention that, he, Stephen King does a masterful job of taking us from the kids to the adults, back to the kids. So when I did Criminal Zoo, I was heavily influenced by Stephen King and the way he so seamlessly took us from the kids world into the adult world back and forth and at no point does the reader ever get confused so I thought can I do that can I do that with Samuel so I open up you know Samuel as a kid as an adult back to a kid and I I bounce back and forth in my you know my fear was will I lose the reader Will the reader always know where we are is Samuel a kid is he an adult And I think I did a fairly good job. Now, I also had tremendous editing from Pat Walsh. Pat Walsh, Defenestration Press, he took this manuscript. He really helped me. You know, we took it apart. He helped me dismantle it, and we put it back together. You know, there were times I actually printed the manuscript out in hard copy, laid it out on the floor, chapter by chapter, and rearranged chapters, took scissors, cut sections out. So it was not originally designed as it is now. I had a bit of a flow influenced by Stephen King, but in the editing with Pat Walsh, he helped me put it all together. Okay, so now I got a question for you in the whole writing aspect. You know, how we do what we do. When I wrote my first manuscript... It was a manuscript titled Fourth Pumpkin. It has not seen the light of day yet, but I haven't given up on it. I didn't realize I was writing a novel. I sat down to write a story, a short story perhaps, but around page 60 or so, I realized I had a book on my hands. Your first manuscript. Did you sit down specifically to write a book? Or did a short story get away from you? And was this your first published book, The Non-Pro?
0: 17 years ago, Sean, I sat down at the computer. I did not know how to write a novel, but I knew that I wanted to write one. And I didn't have a story. I didn't have an outline. I just knew one thing. I wanted to write the first chapter that night. And in Nanto, I only knew one thing. I wanted to write a chapter that began with my own funeral. And I wanted to write about what people would say about me at that funeral. And then I wrote a brother character who'd come to Los Angeles to find his brother's killer. And every night for three years, I wrote to find out who killed him. And it grew and grew and grew, and I got to about 60,000 words. And then at some point when I reached the end, it was three years later, The trance, the movie in my head, ended. And I had all this footage. And writing that first draft was the greatest time of my life. And that was followed by five years of misery, trying to get it published. So that was learning by doing. And my dad said it best. You know, he said... Published author, is a lot better than failed novelist. So I wanted to know if did you suffer trying to get Criminal Zoo published? How long, or rather, how did you get it to, to Station Press and Tyson Cornell? and And was there a, a memorable rejection letter you got, or was it immediately well received?
1: Tell us. Well I tell you what, Adam. It it's truly magic when you talk about, you know, the trance. Well said. That I couldn't put it any better than that. The trance. That's exactly what it is. It's a trance and we enter this world and when the trance is over we come out and all of a sudden we have a novel on our hands. I love that you write the same way I do. So How did I, I found out that I was going to get published in an email Friday, March 8, 2013, not that I have it committed to memory, it's not burned in my mind forever, Mr. Pat Walsh sent me an email telling me who he was, who he was from, and he said, do you have a minute to talk about your book? Now, I first wrote Criminal Zoo in 2007. And so by 2013, did I suffer? You know my suffering well. You suffered. You're not, any advice I have to anyone who wants to break into the publishing world, the literary world, be prepared to suffer. Your suffering will be great. But once you break through, would I do it all over again? I would do every day of it all over again. So, yes, I suffered for six years. I finally got the email from Pat Walsh and Defenestration Press. Now, I had been rejected. I have a folder. I have a folder probably three or four inches thick. I have kept every rejection letter. I plan on one day doing an entire wall. A, wall, a wallpaper with rejections. You ask about my worst rejection letter. Easy, easy. The worst rejection letter I ever received was my first rejection letter. It was from Pamela A. Hearn Agency out of New Orleans. It was for my first novel, The first novel titled the fourth pumpkin which again it's still you know i still play with that now and again it's on the back burner but that first rejection cut right through my soul i didn't realize years and years more than a decade ago i didn't realize that when you write you don't just write a book and then submit it to a publisher and get published and be stephen king I thought, look at me. I'm the next face of horror. When I wrote, I just assumed, okay, you write a book and you get published. Little did I know that agony, pain, and suffering for years would follow. So that first rejection, I got, it absolutely cut me right through my soul. But you know what? After rejection 400 or so, They don't hurt as much anymore. You build up a bit of a tolerance. So, okay, question for you now, Adam. My turn. I get the floor. So, in your second novel, we talked about the non-pro. in your second novel, Take Fountain, it's presented as found pages, a creative parallel to found footage films such as Cannibal Holocaust and Blair Witch. I would describe your writing style after reading Freaks of the Industry and the different mediums you use to tell a story and then the found pages in Take Fountain. Your writing style, I would have to call innovative, very innovative. Adam, do you write in this style as easily as you would in a traditional narrative format? And also, second part of this question is, tell me about the interesting title.
0: Well, thanks for your praise, Sean. You know, it means the world to me to have uh, found not just a reader, but uh, a, a brother in so many ways, having traveled the same journey that you've taken. I know everything you just described about those rejection letters and the blind joy of being published. Uh, Tyson, Cornell, and Rare Bird Books uh, blessed me when they wanted to publish Take Fountain, which is a famous quote about Los Angeles It actually has to do with a street called Fountain Avenue, which is really traffic-free, and it runs parallel to Sunset Boulevard. And there are two stories about Fountain. One story is that Betty Davis was on the Johnny Carson show, and Johnny Carson said to Betty Davis at the end of her life, "She's smoking a cigarette," and Johnny Carson said, "Betty, you're a legend. You have any advice for an aspiring actress? What's the best way to get into Hollywood?" And Betty Davis said, kick Fountain." I love,
1: story, it. I love
0: it. The other story, Sean, is that there's a stand-up comedian named Sam Kinison who would tell his crowd at the comedy store, listen up, all of you, don't drive drunk. But if you do, take fountain.
1: You know, it's so ironic that you bring that up with Sam Kinison being killed by a drunk driver. So... When, you know, with the email that I got from Pat, I got to tell you, when I got that email, I got it earlier in the day, I got it in the morning, do you have a minute to talk about your book? With the pain and suffering that you talk about, I had to go to the gym and I did a leg workout, I did a leg workout so excruciating I couldn't move, I could hardly breathe, I almost threw up, I did a leg workout so excruciating that when I contacted Pat Walsh, who said, do you have a minute minute to talk about your book, I was so tired, so exhausted, so blown up from this leg workout that I wouldn't have any energy to react either way. If he said something positive, if he said, thanks for submitting, we're going to put it on the back burner maybe for later. Either way, I wasn't going to be able to respond because I was too exhausted. It was a self-defense mechanism for whether he had good or bad words for me. Hmm. I just about killed myself just to prepare for that. Now, so in line with that, that's my segue into, in Freaks of the Industry, you have a confirmed kill list in your book. Okay, Adam you have Death by Sharpie, Exploding Cigar, Banana, Hand Buzzer, Silly putty garrot, and my favorite. I love this one. You have Death. You have Assassination by Spork. Adam, among others, you have these listed. They are fabulous. Spork, who kills someone with a spork? That takes a pretty talented assassin. So before you spun this wildly entertaining yarn, did perhaps Alice sit down with you and share some of her mushroom? And finally, do you fear? Okay, you talk about this extremist group, the Justice for Janitors. Adam, now that you've revealed all these deep, dark secrets of Hollywood, do you fear that you may now be the top name on the janitor's hit list? Sean, get this.
0: A long time ago, in Hollywood, people started playing an assassination game. Killing as an organized sport, or chaos. And writers would go to the studio for a pitch meeting, and they would be allowed onto the studio lot, and it wasn't a pitch meeting. It would be an assassination. And someone would whip out a magic marker and swipe the forehead of a studio executive followed by, you're dead, Bill. And then they got more creative. And next thing you know, there were water balloons being dropped on people's heads in Beverly Hills. And the kills became reported in the Daily Variety. And then the police got involved and they shut it down. And I was in film school reading about this, of what was going on in the movie business. And then years later, when I thought about what what if it turned deadly? What if somebody upped the stakes and actually killed someone? And then I thought of the labor protests in downtown LA where they would set fire to effigies and and march and there was this group, this outrage group called Justice for Janitors and the more I thought about this idea, Sean, the more it cracked me up and you know when something cracks you up, you know it's a good idea and you can make yourself laugh so uh, I, I think I would be uh, somewhere on their list, not very high up, but I would think if any of them read this novel, I think justice for is probably would put me at the top.
1: Well, suddenly knowing that now you're writing a tale of truth, hell, I thought this damn thing was fiction. Suddenly I'm glad I'm far, far away in the land known as Billings, Montana, you live in a dangerous land, my friend. Hey. All right, so now I, I need to, I'm going to turn this serious for a second. In your epigraph, you have an epigraph, a quote by Vladimir Nabokov, and it reads, Human life is but a series of footnotes to a vast, obscure, unfinished masterpiece. Adam you use this epigraph because it meant something to you. I have to ask you this question. Who do you think is painting this masterpiece?
0: You know, I wasn't thinking about the creator with that quote. To me, it's about mortality. And I've been thinking a lot lately about my own mortality and how fast life goes and how insignificant sometimes I think about what we're doing. And I love that quote because it it gives me a certain perspective that, you know, we're just footnotes in some masterpiece. And most of us aren't even worthy enough to be footnotes. So uh, I'll tell you something, because we, we've, we've, we've never met, we've never spoken before, but I, I, I feel like we've gotten to know each other on this call. I, I have, uh, After writing three novels, I have never been more aware of my death. I've never been more aware that life is short and that I'm doing, finally, what I love to do, which may be living in my head and trying to get into that trance that we talk about. And it's like raising three children, Sean, and like your son off to college, and I'm exhausted. So I want to ask you, you, because we're on the subject, who do you think is painting this? Vast, obscure, unfinished
1: masterpiece. You know, Adam, I'm a big fan of Paulo Coelho. You know, Stephen King, Dean Koontz; those guys can write a story that'll scare you right out of your shoes. But there's a couple of authors and philosophers, Paulo Coelho and Khalil Gibran. I like those two very, very much. They're very enlightened, you know, years, years, years ahead of their times in their writings. Calo Gabran no longer with us. Paolo Coelho still with us. I, I have a favorite quote. We are afraid of losing what we have, whether it is our life or our property or possessions, but this fear evaporates when we realize our life stories and the history of the world were written by the same hand. What this means to me, Adam, is the universe. I'm a believer in the energy, in the energy of the universe. Albert Einstein, the smartest man on the planet, as far as I'm concerned, said, everything is energy and that's all there is to it. Match the frequency of the reality you want and you cannot help it to get this reality. It can be no other way. This isn't physics, no, this isn't philosophy, this is physics. So I believe in the energy of the universe. Paulo Coelho talks about the universe, about it when you want something, the universe helps you. I believe that the masterpiece that you use in your epigraph that Vladimir is talking about, I think the energy, whether we say the universe is God the universe, Allah, Buddha, we can call them whatever we want. I think there's an energy out there and I'm a believer in the energy and I think that it knows our stories. Adam, I believe that we learn our stories one day at a time, like your epigraph. We're we're just parts of a masterpiece and the universe, the energy, God, whoever, call them what you want, it is writing our stories and we are learning it day by day and we are all Seven billion people on this planet, we're all a part of this masterpiece and the universe. God is writing it for us. That is my belief.
0: Well, before we go, congratulations are in order. I want to congratulate you for being nominated for Best Horror Novel from Forward Reviews, Sean.
1: Well, thank you. I do appreciate that. I mean now you know. you know
0: what now you know what it's like when someone says in Los Angeles it's just an honor to be nominated. All that hard work, all those rejection letters, that folder of paper means nothing when someone has crowned you and your novel the best. so I want you to have the last word. I want you to tell me if you're working on a new story, a new novel, or something. Where have you been lately? What chance have you visited?
1: All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for the congratulations. I would just like to say it's just an honor to be nominated.
0: Now, I am uh,
1: the. I have a next. The next manuscript has been turned in to Rare Bird and to Defenestration Press. It is undergoing. We're about in the editing. About to begin the editing phase. It will be released in 2018, probably spring of 2018. Now, Adam, I can tell you this about the next manuscript. It may or may not have something to do with Criminal Zoo. Now, I could tell you, Adam, but then I'd have to send the Justice for Janitors hit squad after you to silence you. I love it. I love it. I'll leave you. I will leave you with that. I would just like to say it's been a pleasure this evening visiting with you. I am honored. Thank you for taking the time tonight to chat with me.
0: Absolutely, and we have Rare Bird and Defense Station Press to thank, not only for putting us
1: together, but for publishing us. So, Sean, have a good night.